What's that? Chickens coming home to roost. <laughs> Is that what's happening? We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, up in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst others. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, and thank you for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Can it get any more thrillinger? I hope not. Uh, you know, I'm <laughs> old enough. Honest. I'm old enough to remember Desi Doyen way back in the golden years of 2015 and 2016, as uh, 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 Donald Trump's greatest con was. Just then coming to fruition, how folks used to say to me all the time, actually, and I think they were trying to be encouraging at the time and good natured. They would say, well, at least you got plenty of content for your radio show each day. Ah, Yes. It didn't help. It didn't no. help when they said no. Uh, you, but, at least you have plenty to talk about as the world falls apart. Yeah, exactly. And and back then, I think they didn't even know the half of it in those glorious halcyon days of innocence. In we were so young. Twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen. So anyway, uh, now the uh, good news, if we can call it that, today is that much of today's avalanche of news from just over the past twelve hours or so, and it's mind blowing. Uh, at least uh, of the major stories that I'm interested in today, are each accountability stories, at least of a sort, at least as much as we are seemingly ever allowed to have or enjoy on any particular day during the ongoing Trump coronavirus era. And each of these stories, frankly, uh, on their own, deserve a full hour of airtime to cover. But as Trevor Noah used to say on The Daily Show before he was forced to broadcast from his bunker, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> so uh, some quick headlines uh, of a sort uh, on each of these uh, otherwise huge stories uh, before we'll be joined a little bit later by the American Prospects' David Dayen once again for another unsanitized update on the efforts 
and travails, I suppose, to move through and someday beyond our ongoing coronavirus as new jobless numbers are in today and they ain't good uh, again. And it feels to me as the White House appears to be doing nothing to put a real testing and contract contact tracing regime in place that Congress is also stalled on their part of the bargain, completely stalled in their efforts to shore up the economy as things go from bad to worse to unimaginably worse. But hey, first, some sort of happier news, <laughs> accountability news, uh, much of which broke yesterday uh, after air and has been continuing to break all day today. The L.A. Times was the first to break this potential bombshell news. Last night, federal agents seized a cell phone belonging to a prominent Republican U.S. Senator, Richard Burr of North Carolina, on Wednesday night as part of the Justice Department's investigation into a huge number of stock trades that he made as the coronavirus first struck in the U.S. Burr, the chair of the powerful Senate Intelligence Committee, at least until today, but we'll get to that in a moment, uh, turned over his phone to the agents after they served a search warrant on the lawmaker at his residence in the D.C. area. The seizure represents a significant escalation in the investigation into whether Burr violated a law preventing members of Congress from trading on insider information that they have gleaned from their official work. To obtain a search warrant, federal agents and prosecutors had to first persuade a judge that they have probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. So the DOJ is arguing that Richard Burr did violate the law. Such a warrant being served on a sitting U.S. senator would require approval from the highest ranks of the Justice Department, the L.A. Times writes. In other words, presumably Attorney General Bill Barr signed off on this. And to obtain a search warrant on a sitting Republican U.S. senator, well, I suspect uh, that required an even higher approval than Bill Barr, given the corruption of this particular White House. L.A. Times law enforcement, their source, their L.A. Times uh, uh, law enforcement source, one of them said that the Justice Department is examining Burr's communications with his stockbroker. A second law enforcement official said FBI agents served a warrant in recent days on Apple to obtain information from Burr's iCloud account and said that uh, agents used data from that as part of the evidence used to obtain the warrant for the senator's phone. Burr had sold a significant percentage of his stock portfolio in 33 different transactions all on one single day. On February 13, just as his committee was receiving daily briefings about the virus and just about a week before the stock market took a plunge over the cliff and really hasn't looked back since for the most part. Much of the uh, stock that was sold by Burr was invested in businesses that in subsequent weeks ended up being hit hard by the plunging market. His sell-off, which was publicly disclosed in ranges, amounted uh, from anywhere between 628000 to $1.72 by the way, raising the issue of, uh, you know, a U.S. senator has that much money in the first place. 
And I don't think he's even close to being the richest senator. Oh, not at all. The uh, stock trades were first reported uh, by the Center for Responsive Politics and ProPublica. Thank you very much for having done that several weeks ago. Burr is not the only senator who's come under fire for dumping stock as the virus neared the U.S., but Burr sits on two Senate committees that got early briefings on the coronavirus, the Intelligence Committee and the Senate Committee uh, that handles health issues. The Health Committee received a briefing on the virus on February 12, just the day before his stock trades. The same day that Burr sold his stock, his brother-in-law, guy by the name of Gerald Fouth also sold between $97,000 and $280,000 worth of six stocks, according to documents filed with the Office of Government Ethics. Burr has denied coordinating trading with his brother-in-law. It was apparently just a coincidence that they both on the same day sold off hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of stocks. Under the U.S. Stock Act, lawmakers are required to disclose their stock market activity, which apparently Burr did, but they are still allowed to own stock even in industries that they might oversee as long as they disclose it. Well, that law passed the Senate in 2012. It was a 96 to 3 vote. There was just three senators who opposed that bill. And yes, one of them was Richard Burr. <laughs> in response to that news on Wednesday night, Burr said on Thursday uh, that he is temporarily stepping down from his committee post as the chair of the powerful Senate Intelligence Committee, saying that the investigation is a, quote, distraction to the hard work of the committee and the members. And I think that the security of the country is too important to have a distraction. Well, good for him. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that he and Burr had agreed that his uh, decision to step aside, quote, would be in the best interest of the committee and takes effect Friday evening. So this seems very serious, but also somewhat suspicious for just a couple of reasons. Why only Burr? The L.A. Times noted last night that uh, in late February and early March, Senator Kelly Loeffler of Georgia, Republican of Georgia, also sold stocks, in her case valued between $1.2 million and $3.1 million in, cop in uh, companies that later dropped significantly as well, including ExxonMobil. She also brought sh bought shares in Citrix, which happens to make uh, teleworking software. So convenient. Isn't it, though? What a great stock picker. Uh, so that seems suspicious. Why wasn't her cell phone seized as well? Now, she claims that her investments are in a blind trust, so she knew nothing about the sales and the purchases. But, of course, uh, you know, I guess I would make that claim, too, if I was in her situation. Yeah, especially if your husband was the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. She, by the way, is the richest member, I believe, of Congress. And she was just uh, named to uh, to that seat a few months ago by Georgia Georgia's illegitimate governor, Brian Kemp. Thick as thieves. Uh, Loeffler, who was uh, appointed to fill a vacancy and faces an election earlier th uh, later this year, uh, said after the sales became public that she and her husband would now divest from all individual stocks. <laughs> Which, by the way, great time, actually, to get the hell out of the market, isn't it? <laughs> you know, before things get worse. 
Now, back on the 1st of April, Tim Mack, NPR's Washington investigative correspondent, he wrote a list of why investigators might be most inclined to focus on Burr's transaction specifically rather than the other senators who also had seemingly suspicious uh, stock sales. Among the reasons, uh, the timing of the transaction, that it was all done on one single day, the large number, 33 of them in a single day, how unusual that volume of transactions is for Burr, who had not sold in that volume ever before, to their knowledge. The nature of the stock sales, up to uh, 250000 were in the hospitality sector, which took a big hit, restaurants and so forth. His uh, private comments, which uh, we played a few weeks ago uh, to Republican uh, funders, were very different than his public comments. In private, he was saying, hey, this is going to be very bad. In public, he was saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to do our best. And, of course, the fact that he actually acknowledged that he was personally behind the sales, unlike Loeffler, who claims a third party did it. She knew nothing about it. But because it's the wildly corrupt Trump administration, you would think that they would ignore all of this rather than losing a sitting senator potentially in an election year in targeting Burr. Well, one, the deadline to file to run for that uh, for for office for if there's going to be a special election to fill his seat, let's say he for some reason must leave the Senate. That deadline is coming up very soon. So if there's to be a special election in November for Burr's seat, in a state where the other senator, North Carolina, Republican Senator Tom Tillis, is already thought to be at very serious risk of being uh, voted out this November. Well, if there was going to be an election, they would have to sign up for that election pretty soon. Otherwise, if Burr steps down after the deadline for the special election in November, that seat would be filled by an appointment of the governor in North Carolina, who now happens to be... A Democrat. Democrat. Yep. Mm. So pushing uh, Burr out sooner rather than later might be much better for this White House. Also, his bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee was one of the few not horribly corrupted committees run by Republicans in Congress at this point. And they are on the verge of coming out with a thousand page report on Russian interference in the 2016 election, which is rumored to be a fairly direct echo of the findings of the uh, Robert Mueller report, which Trump prefers to describe as a hoax that didn't find any wrongdoing. Well, that is not true, of course. And uh, a bipartisan report from the U.S. Senate to that end will do Trump no favors. If Burr is pushed out of his uh, role uh, as chair. Or even just muzzled for a good period of time. Yeah, exactly. That would help delay that report until potentially after the November election. Okay, but that's not all we have uh, in accountability news. Not by a long shot. Uh, yesterday, we also quickly covered the fact that the federal judge in the long-running Michael Flynn case was telegraphing that he did not intend to simply accept at face value the Department of Justice's new motion to dismiss the years-long uh, prosecution of Trump's first national security advisor, who had previously pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about contacts he'd had with Russia's ambassador before Trump was inaugurated and about being a paid agent for Turkey even while serving 
as the national security advisor in the White House. Let's just rewind that. Remember, he was working for Turkey inside the White House. And hadn't disclosed that. Yeah. So anyway, that motion uh, to withdraw all the charges was not filed by the line prosecutors who worked on the case for years. Instead, Bill Barr's personal apparatchik, who he put in charge of the case, recently was the one who, who signed and submitted this motion, the real career not political appointee uh, prosecutors. They all refused to sign the motion, and the judge noticed this, and he put put out word that uh, we discussed yesterday that he was welcoming friend-of-the-court briefs from outside organizations to argue against the Department of Justice in this case after years of prosecuting Flynn, but now essentially joining forces with his defense attorneys. Well, again, not long after airtime last night, more news broke on that story. The federal judge overseeing the case against Flynn appointed a hard-charging former prosecutor and judge to oppose the Justice Department's effort to drop the case and to explore a perjury charge against Michael Flynn. Judge Emmett Sullivan's appointment of the former judge, John Gleason, who the, uh, <clears throat> the New York Times reports was an extraordinary move, uh, after the uh, DOJ's uh, last week abruptly uh, dropped the charges against Flynn following the long campaign by Donald Trump and his supporters to drop the charges, prompting accusations that Attorney General Bill Barr had undermined the rule of law and further politicized the department. Judge Sullivan also asked Gleason to explore the possibility that by trying to withdraw his pleas, Flynn opened himself up to uh, to uh, perjury charges. As former federal prosecutor Randall Eliason, an occasional guest on this program, told The Washington Post, Judge Sullivan's contemplation of holding Flynn in contempt for perjury exposed what has long been a flaw in Flynn's argument that his initial guilty plea should be undone, Flynn admitted in court under oath three different times before two different judges that he lied to the FBI. Eliason said they can't have it both ways. If they're going to say now that he didn't lie to the FBI, then he lied to the judge. Is he lying then or is he lying now? Exactly. And that would be potentially perjury. But Eliason notes Barr's DOJ is unlikely to prosecute Flynn for perjury, but another option is that the judge could hold him in contempt for lying to the judge. Judges do sometimes appoint third parties to represent an interest they feel is not being heard in a case. Judge Sullivan's move, however, was highly unusual. One uh, federal prosecutor said this is extraordinary for the judge to appoint somebody to argue against a prosecutor's motion to dismiss a criminal case. But it's extraordinary for a prosecutor to dismiss this sort of criminal case in the first place. He said what the Justice Department did is, as far as any of us can figure out, unprecedented. So the fact that this is pretty unprecedented, too, is not that surprising. And... We don't have time because there's still more accountability news to get to. But this judge, Judge Gleason, is apparently a hard charging uh, judge, most famous for prosecuting or, or for putting the late mob boss John Gotti behind bars. Hmm. He was an appointee of Bill Clinton. 
He has been critical of the Justice Department and uh, wrote uh, recently that uh, what uh, in, a, in an op-ed, I think, in The Washington Post, that what uh, Bill Barr has done here seems to be unbelievably uh, political. So, as I said, th- all of this, this is not uh, the only uh, fresh trouble now for the president of the United States in the courts today. Let me take a quick break here. We'll come back with a bit more accountability news. And then David Dayen will be here to turn our attention to Congress and their ongoing failures to uh, fix, well, just about everything. That's ahead as well today. Ahead as well today. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Breaking rocks in the hot sun I fought the law I'm a law one I fought the law yeah. I'm a well, the law hasn't won yet, and I'm not actually <laughs> sure, or is the law the good guys these days or the bad guys? It's And that's a sad question to yeah, have to ask. It's very difficult to keep track. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Okay, one more accountability story before we get to David Dayan. A federal appeals court on Thursday refused to throw out a lawsuit that claims Donald Trump's ownership of a luxury hotel in Washington, D.C. violates the Constitution's ban on receiving financial benefits from the states or from foreign leaders. It was a vote of 9-6 to six in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which rejected the effort by Trump's lawyers to get the case dismissed, the court saying that the uh, uh, federal court overseeing the case originally wrongly failed to rule on whether the president is immune from such lawsuits. The case was brought two years ago by the attorneys general of Maryland and the District of Columbia. They claim that Trump's hotel ownership, the uh, Trump International Hotel in D.C., violates the Constitution's emoluments clause a provision which bars the president from receiving, quote, and I'm quoting from the Constitution here, any present emolument, office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince or foreign state or any state in the U.S. The AGs contended Trump improperly benefits financially whenever foreign or state governments patronize the Trump Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue which the suit says uh, competes unfairly with D.C.'s Convention Center and Maryland's National Harbor development. The Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia, reversed a July decision that had dismissed the case previously, seeking to prosecute what Maryland's attorney general described as, quote, the nation's original anti-corruption law. Uh, He told Bloomberg News that Trump has, quote, been violating That law from day one of his presidency. So Thursday's ruling by an enlarged unbanked panel of appellate judges reverses Trump's win in this case back in July from the same court where they had a three judge panel all appointed by Republican presidents who threw the case out at the time. 
The larger panel held that allowing the executive to define what constitutes an emolument would be a faulty premise. Essentially, the DOJ is in there arguing that, oh, no, this isn't uh, these aren't emoluments. The DOJ is a part of the executive branch, which is run by the president, who is the one sort of on trial here. It's just it was ridiculous uh, in the first place. So uh, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a good government group, they filed a similar emoluments case in federal court in Manhattan. They praised today's ruling in D.C. The Justice Department said, of course, they are disappointed and they plan to appeal the ruling to the Republicans stolen U.S. Supreme Court. OK, that's going to work out. Now, with all of that said, uh, as I as I said, sort of encouraging accountability news today for against, I should say, Richard Senator Richard Burr against the corrupt attorney general Bill Barr. And now for Donald Trump. Well, we could sit around and enjoy that good news or we could bring on David Dayan to slap some sense into all of us uh, and remind us about the mess that we're facing here as new economic numbers are out today, underscoring the very real disaster that we are all now facing as the fallout from Trump's failed coronavirus response continues to gut the U.S. economy. That's next with the always cheery David Dayan of the American Prospect right after this on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Once I built a tower up to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can, can you spare a dime? Yeah, welcome back to the Bradcast, to the Depression-era Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Another nearly 3 million unemployment claims were filed last week. The U.S. Labor Department reports today. That means there have been more than 36 million total jobless claims, more jobs than those gained over the past decade of recovery following the 2008 global financial crash over just the past two months as the COVID-19 pandemic wreaks pandemonium on the U.S. economy. While it was the smallest weekly total over the past two months, suggesting perhaps that there is a dwindling number of companies reducing their payrolls, the latest tally shows that the number of weekly jobless claims remains enormous, reflecting an economy that is sinking into a severe downturn as last week's pace of new applicants for aid is still four times higher than the previous all-time record high, since the U.S. has tracked such numbers, that has been true every single week since March, ranging anywhere from three to six and a half million 
claims per week added to the jobless rolls with the previous record week prior to the crisis falling short of even one million such weekly claims. That as jobless workers in some states are still reporting difficulty applying for or receiving benefits. These include freelance gig and self-employed workers. They became newly eligible for jobless aid this year for the first time. The latest jobless claim follows a devastating jobs report last week where the government said unemployment soared to 14.7 percent in April, with employers shedding a stunning 20 and a half million jobs. Yes, a decade's worth of job growth wiped out in one single month. Economists say that uh, things are likely to get much worse. And if all of the people uh, who had had, uh, actually been unemployed but didn't bother to look for work, if they had been included, the jobless rate right now would be somewhere around 24 percent. Few analysts now expect a quick rebound. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell warned Wednesday that the virus-induced recession could turn into a prolonged downturn. Oh, do you think? He urged Congress and the White House to consider additional spending and tax measures above the more than $2 trillion that Congress has now already allocated and the nearly $4 trillion that the Federal Reserve is using to shore up companies and in theory, the economy right now, Uh, more money to help small businesses and households avoid bankruptcy. Well, on Wednesday, according to financial investigative journalist David Dayan, in his latest daily unsanitized report at the American Prospect, Powell released data revealing that 40 percent, 40 percent of households making 40,000 or less lost their jobs in March before things got really bad In April, Powell said Congress will simply have to appropriate more money to deal with the surging economic pain, noting, quote, additional fiscal support could be costly, but worth it if it helps avoid long term economic damage and leaves us with a stronger recovery. For central bankers, Dan observes, Powell's words, quote, were the equivalent of someone stopping traffic and yelling at the top of their lungs in the middle of the street. Dan also notes today, on top of all of this, that a new report from Kaiser Family Foundation found that so far, an estimated 27 million Americans have lost employer-based health insurance due to the crisis in the midst of the worst uh, global health crisis in modern history. How's that working out for the forgotten workers that Donald Trump used to pretend to care about. But it's also worth noting here, as Dan has been doing for much of this past week in his column, that much of this, at least the huge unemployment numbers, is actually somewhat by design, just as Congress had wanted when they adopted their recent emergency relief measures, such as the CARES Act. Joining us now for our own unsanitized update is David Dan, executive editor of The American Prospect. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. How you doing? Oh, never better. So uh, you have been uh, you've been reporting over the past week, David, that these huge unemployment numbers are actually by design. Actually, what Congress wanted when they adopted the CARES Act. How so? Well, uh, the CARES Act, one of the centerpieces of it, is this boost to unemployment insurance. Mm -hmm. 
so each state gives a, a pretty meager amount of unemployment insurance to Americans, but the CARES Act added a flat $600 extra in everyone's weekly unemployment check. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what this does means that pretty much uh, up to about $75,000 a year, depending on the state, uh, you, you're fully replaced in terms of your income mm-hmm. uh, by staying on unemployment. If it's at the low-wage sector, you're actually making far more uh, than, than, than you were when you were working. And, you know, I mean, there was kind of a logic to this. We don't want people going to work right now necessarily unless they are essential workers. Mm-hmm. And for those who need to stay home, we are going to give them such amounts of money such that they can, they can maintain their living standards, pay their rent, pay their bills, pay their essentials. And, and move forward. The, mm-hmm. the national savings rate has actually risen yeah. <laughs> since uh, within April uh, for this reason. And so there are sort of two competing schools of thought about that. One is, hey, this unemployment is uh, boosted. We should keep it boosted, mm-hmm. and that's going to increase worker power You know, when the, the economy restarts again because uh, there's, a, there's a different option here for, for, for workers. But, you know, it's temporary. Right now it's going to expire in July. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the new bill that Pelosi has put out, the HEROES Act, would extend that until next January. Mm. Uh, but it's unclear whether that's going to pass muster. Republicans are already talking about how this is incredibly distortion. That, uh, you know, it, it distorts the economy, and, and, and people are making money, more money than they would working, and so that uh, gives them too much uh, reason to, to stay unemployed and it ruins the economy, et cetera. But, but what's the alternative, David? I mean, if we didn't want people to go into work and uh, uh, infect each other, what would be the alternative? Would oh, that be? Al- yeah. Sure. So one alternative is what Pramila Jayapal has championed, along with Bernie Sanders and some others, which is direct payroll support. So you get your paycheck through a payroll company, and mm-hmm. that payroll company is obviously paid by your company uh, to, to forward the money along to you. Mm-hmm. The idea would be that the, the, the payroll company would build a government instead. And so you would keep your job at that pay rate, and the, and, and the government would pick up the bill. Uh, the, uh, one, one positive thing about that is you would keep your employer-provided health insurance mm-hmm. because you would keep all your benefits. That would, that would also you know, factor into the mix of being paid for by the government. So um, uh, that would be the alternative. So there are sort of these two schools of thought that, uh, you know, just because you're being paid doesn't mean you have to come in, right? So right. Uh, uh, you, you can, if we're going to do this lockdown, uh, we can... You know, do it through the unemployment system, or we can do it through uh, the existing payroll system. And is is that more like what we're seeing in, uh, I think, uh, Great Britain and some of the other yeah. European countries that they're basically yeah, saying absolutely, yeah, st- absolutely what we're seeing. Stay on the payroll, but we, the government, will will cover that payroll for the duration of the crisis. Essentially, right. It, that's absolutely what we're seeing. And you know, I mean, one one thing that we should say is that the re- one of the reasons why these states, uh, in, in Republican-leaning states, are so keen to reopen the economy is because they want to create a situation where workers have to go back on the job or else they lose their unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. They're looking to, call, to, to shrink their unemployment roles. 
uh, there are states that have set up websites so that companies can enter in uh, X such and such worker uh, is is officially recalled, and if he doesn't come in, you can you know he's he's fired, so you can take him off the unemployment insurance. These snitching websites, websites yeah. Set up. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's motivating, I think, a lot of the reopening of the country, and it, it hasn't been discussed really in that form, but it's sort of the fatal flaw in in this this argument of, well, just put everybody on um, unemployment and everything will be fine. Because if states can nullify it, then you have millions of people who are sort of adrift. Adrift, unable to uh, either get a paycheck unless they want to risk their lives and unable to get an employment check because they've been uh, their businesses have been reopened, but they don't feel safe going back to work, I guess. That's correct. That's correct. And so you know, those, that, that's sort of the competing plan. Now, so, so Pelosi in the HEROES Act really went with Plan A, the unemployment plan. She wants to extend unemployment, uh, and she rejected the Jayapal uh, uh, procedure mm-hmm. to do direct payroll support. Jayapal uh, objected to this. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, Pelosi said that this didn't get into the bill, this is pretty interesting, uh, you know, members of Congress don't sit down and write the bill, mm-hmm. right? They, they say, this is what I want to happen. Right. And then there's a, a group of lawyers in an office that then turns that into legislative language. And that office is working from home just like the rest of us, mm-hmm. and their productivity is delayed. And so they, they, there's a bottleneck there in the House of Representatives. And they're really only writing the legislative language for the speaker and, you know, chairman of, of committees for their bills. So Jayapal was sitting in this queue. She has the bill, but it's not written in legislative mm-hmm. language. And so when Jayapal asked, well, why didn't my part of the get into the, the HEROES Act, my, mm-hmm. my paycheck guarantee idea, they said, well, there's no legislative language on it. <laughs> but, of course, that was by design. Right. Because the way Pelosi has been running Congress by herself practically Nobody else can get their legislation written up. Well, let's talk about that uh, Heroes Act because you were uh, sort of highlighting that uh, uh, sort of split with the Progressive Caucus with Jayapal leading the way. Although it looks like more progressives are now seem to be throwing in with uh, Pelosi on this new measure. First off, the the CARES Act, which was really the last major piece of legislation. Uh, was followed up by a subsequent extension of the Paycheck Protection Program for small right. businesses, uh, but the CARES Act was really the the, the last large measure, um, and that was what was that about a month or so ago? I know I've lost all the track end of, of time. Ma- end of March. End yeah. of March. Okay. Um, since then, McConnell in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, said he is in no rush at all to pass another stimulus or emergency relief bill. Yep. Uh, but the Democrats in the House, or as as you note. Nancy Pelosi in the House, largely working alone, um, has now put together this three trillion dollar follow up. It's called the Heroes Act. Uh, I think it's going to receive a vote on Friday in the House. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what is it actually? And is this the legislation that Jerome Powell of the Fed was actually asking for in his remarks on Wednesday? Well, three trillion's a, a fair bit of money. Right? Yeah, right. So it is about going big. Uh, the centerpiece of it is really money for state and local governments. So it it supplies $1 trillion, so about one-third of the bill, mm-hmm. for state and local government relief. 
the rest of it is is just this laundry list of uh, pretty much every idea, except for for Melagiapols, of course, <laughs> that uh, that that the the caucus has had over the last you know two months. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's you know because McConnell is saying this is this is a wish list, this is dead on arrival. Uh, even Democrats themselves have said this is not meant to become law. It's meant to set a marker for future negotiations. Uh, and, and at that point, you wonder why certain things are in there. So there's like a bailout of uh, K Street uh, lobbying group. Mm-hmm. Which I, which uh, I want to ask you, I want to press you on a little bit in a second, but go ahead. Yeah, what else? There's, uh, there's a, a Federal Reserve lending facility for corporate landlords. There's a, uh, another one for debt collectors. Uh, there, there, there are a host of very puzzling things that you wouldn't put into wish list legislation. It's more like the kind of stuff you would put in if you're trying to fashion a compromise with mm-hmm. Republicans where you get one thing and they get another. Mm-hmm. So I don't really understand the strategy so much. And it, it, it speaks to more of a general incoherence, I think, in the Democratic Party. Of they don't really know exactly what they want to do. So they just throw in, because we have all these interest groups that mm-hmm. ask for this and that, and so they throw in the kitchen sink, and there's no coherence to it. Whereas Republicans figure out the one thing they really want. In the case of the CARES Act, it was the corporate bailout. Mm-hmm. Willing to do whatever else they needed to do as long as they got that corporate bailout. And uh, so that's sort of the difference between the parties and how they approach these uh, the moments. Well, how, how should she be moving forward at this point if McConnell is literally out there and, you know, I mean, there's plenty to be critical uh, of uh, in this bill and, and the way Pelosi has moved forward. But meanwhile, the Republicans and Mitch McConnell are saying we're not doing nothing literally at this time. Yeah. I mean, are they they're not well, in a rush to do anything? Have they put absolutely. anything forward at all? Or are they just sitting there waiting for Donald Trump's pretend it's all going to go away strategy to uh, to come to fruition? Well, one thing they've put forward is that we should give complete liability to any corporation uh, when a, a worker or a customer contracts COVID-19 on their premises. That, that's the only <laughs> thing that McConnell has said is a red line. That's what I want in negotiations. But even if, we get, even if that was given to them, I mean, w- w- th- that's well, not I mean, a strategy. That's not stimulus. That's not relief. Yeah, you have to go back to March. Uh, the, the, the leverage on this whole idea was that Republicans wanted corporations to be protected and, mm-hmm. and the investor class to be protected. And Democrats wanted uh, 35 different things. And Republicans got their thing in late March. They right. got the one thing they wanted. And after that, the leverage is kind of gone. So, of course, McConnell can sit back knowing that I protected the corporate sector, the stock market has been up 6,000 points since I passed that bill, and uh, I don't really have to worry about a whole lot. <laughs> and and re- Democrats can talk themselves till they're blue in the face. It, the, the problem was allowing that to happen without wringing out enough concessions to begin with. Uh, and, and I agree. But that said... I mean, surely Mitch McConnell's plan is not, uh, oh, well, we passed that bill. We got some corporate bailout. Meanwhile, the, 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 the job market is falling apart. The stock market, which was doing well, uh, I think uh, crashed a little bit again this week. I mean, surely he doesn't think 
this is enough. This is all we need to do. I mean, you got a White House which is not doing anything uh, as far as what they should be doing regarding, right. you know, a, a, a strategy nationally for testing and, and tracing and so forth. They're not doing anything in the Congress where they could be shoring things up economically. It seems like Mitch McConnell is willing to do nothing. This does not seem like an actual strategy unless well, you imagine that I mean, everything's going to get better. What Mitch McConnell cares about and what Donald Trump cares about are their own reelections. Right. And uh, to the extent that those reelections are threatened by the continuing public health and economic crisis, that's what's going to motivate them to act. Right. Now, McConnell <laughs> is ideologically opposed to a lot of the things that would uh, be ameliorative uh -huh. in, uh, economically. Right. Trump isn't necessarily. So this is actually kind of a three-way negotiation. Uh -huh. This is not a two-way negotiation. Uh, you know, if it was up to McConnell, states would declare bankruptcy, right? Uh, that's what he said. Let's let them declare bankruptcy. Which they can't uh, do. Which, is, which they can't do, right. and, and which also, you know, he seems to think that there's this, this this magic elixir that saves red states from having to, uh, you know, suffer a budget deficit while blue states do. Right. Uh, uh, it's it's nonsensical. But right. ideologically, he's opposed to giving the states money. Uh, Trump is not. In fact, the the White House was sort of floating like, okay, we'll look at at, at state spending as as a potential, uh, uh, you know, bulwark or, or, or foundation for the next bill. Uh, I, you know, to the extent that, that Democrats can fashion a strategy here, it really runs through Trump because he's willing to do it to save his skin. And then once you get Trump on board with something, through Steve Mnuchin probably, mm -hmm. who's been doing the negotiations, then you can put pressure on McConnell to act. Well, no, no rush, I guess. Uh, we can all, we can well, let that all play. I, apparently. They said we're not doing anything till June. So this bill is going to pass. Uh, uh, tomorrow, and then just sit there. The uh, um, in the um, in the house, it'll in it'll the house sit there. it yeah. will pass tomorrow, and 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 then just well, maybe it'll pass. Actually, you know, I mean, uh, the Progressive Caucus seemingly wants to pick a fight over this, and it's not even necessarily about the legislation itself, but they want to pick a fight over the fact that Pelosi has kind of acted like a tyrant over the last two months, and they want some say in uh, the ultimate uh, uh, whatever results out of uh, the legislation, and, and they don't like how they've been sidelined. And uh, so they have talked about how they're going to, you know, try to, try to hold back 20 or 30 votes so that uh, Pelosi doesn't have them and force Pelosi to come to them to come up with, uh, you know, something that they can say is, is, uh, reflects their position, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, so that will play out tomorrow, and that might, you know, might create a little bit of drama. But as far as this legislation going anywhere, it's not. I mean, it, it, it's just the first poll in, in uh, a, a debate and a negotiation that may or may not happen. And, and, and you know, Trump has said, we're, we're going to wait and see. McConnell has said, we're going to wait and see. And so, uh, you know, just like Trump is content to uh, let people, you know, go back into a meat grinder of their workplaces mm -hmm. in the midst of this crisis, he's content to let the economy burn uh, without any fiscal support uh, for at least the, the, the next month. I'm no economist, 
but I don't think that's going to work. But maybe that's just me. I don't really know anything. Uh, David, I've, I've got just a few minutes here uh, with so much going on today, but I do want to ask you, you have been pressing in uh, uh, in your reporting at, at uh, the American Prospect in your unsanitized column about the fact that uh, Pelosi is including in the HEROES Act this, what you sort of describe as a, a K Street bailout, a lobbyist bailout. Essentially, do I understand it that they're looking to extend the Paycheck Protection Program to nonprofits uh, and well, a specific type of nonprofit. Okay, so five hundred one c three groups, mm-hmm. nonprofits like the Prospect, uh, were eligible for PPP loans mm-hmm. uh, in in the first round, and and full disclosure, we actually got one. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not open to five hundred one c four, which are the dark money groups, right? Uh, like super PAC type groups. And it was not open to 501c6, which are registered lobbyist groups. Right. Um, that's what the new bill would do. It would open up the uh, PPP, which is capped at $10 million. So it's right. not a ton of money per group. But in the aggregate, there are hundreds of K Street lobbying groups who would all be eligible for this $10 million that would you know, go towards uh, mm-hmm. a, a large bit of it going towards paying their employees, as long as the employees... Uh, at each uh, one of these firms is less than 500. And, and, you know, a group called the Democratic Policy Center sent me a report that they did showing that pretty much all of these companies, all all of these trade groups and Mm -hmm. lobbying firms have fewer than 500 employees. Okay, so So they would all be... all going to be eligible. They're all going to be eligible, and you were calling that out because, yes, everybody kind of hates lobbyists. And um, <laughs> but I was going to call you out for that until you actually sort of called out yourself for it in the middle of the article. Do, mm-hmm. do you want to explain that, or should I? Because after calling yourself out on it, I think I'd like to press you just a little bit more on it. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, uh, the, as I've said pretty much repeatedly, the PPP is not where the bailout is. The bailout is happening on Wall Street. The mm-hmm. bailout is happening at the Fed. Right. Uh, that is where trillions of dollars are being generated to protect and save the investor class. It's not in this place where, you know, these small loans are being given to, the, as really as a pass-through to workers. Uh, I do think that lobbying groups represents a bridge too far, however for a variety of different reasons. Number one, these are the groups that are actually, uh, you know, uh, pressing Congress to make changes in the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you have effectively, you know, Congress giving public dollars, taxpayer dollars, to fund, in effect, campaigns run against them <laughs> uh, uh, for, for the purpose of helping corporate clients. Second right. of all, yeah. by virtue of the Fed, the Fed bailout, Corporations, large corporations that are members of these trade groups, are doing fine. Like there, there is, there is no, there has been no drop really in billings for these lobbying groups. They are not in particular financial stress, to my knowledge. Uh, it, it just Google lobbying frenzy, and you will see that every legislation that has been undertaken uh, during this crisis has occasioned a, a large amount of lobbying from these types of groups. I don't see uh, why, 
you know, I mean, PPP is supposed to go to businesses that are under financial strain. Right. I, I don't see the strain here. Okay, well, let, let, let me jump yeah, in on, on that point then. And, of course, I hate you because you've made me now defend lobbyists here for a minute. <laughs> but I'll, I'll take the challenge. Uh, it seems to me that uh, lobbyists uh, actually do deserve to continue to make a living. Even they if they're, well, I, I, well, okay. I, I don't see that they're not. Well, uh, but if you, if, if there was any evidence that there was some sort of financial problem among the lobbying community, maybe I would agree with you. There isn't. Okay, but that's why I'm uh, suggesting that, A, uh, we should make it clear, not all lobbyists, in fact, are evil. There are a lot, a lot of lobbyists working for good government groups, uh, David, that I know that you appreciate and report on with some frequency. It seems to me that they should be allowed to stay employed as well, those workers. But wouldn't some sort of a a means testing, and I know that's a dirty word in many contexts, but wouldn't some sort of means testing here to determine if a specific organization actually needs the money, wouldn't that be more appropriate than simply uh, singling out or knocking out an entire industry because it's an industry that uh, many of us may loathe? Well, that's, a, that's in the bill. I mean, that, that's, that's part of PPP is that you're supposed to demonstrate some sort of financial hardship. Uh, so that 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 already exists. Number one, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's certainly that's open to interpretation. There's a lot of clever ways around that, especially if you have a, a, a lot of good lawyers, the mm-hmm. way lobbyist firms do. Um, <laughs> right. So you know, I mean, that that's only as strong as what's written on paper. Uh, I, I just think that, especially when you think about the revolving door between government and the lobbying sector on K Street. The idea that we would give taxpayer money to organizations like the uh, Pharma or Mm -hmm. the American Bankers Association, Mm -hmm. when this is money being given by Congress to essentially their future employers uh, (laughs) in a way that will be remembered, if we believe that there is, you know, a certain soft corruption in uh, the, the, the constant ties between Wall Street, or not Wall Street, but K Street, mm-hmm. and, uh, the, and, and Congress, then the idea that Congress would be passing free money to K Street becomes that much more distinct. I know, it, it is. But then I think about, you know, oh, the NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council, or these other, uh, you know, organizations that are actually lobbying well, for sure things that matter. I'm not sure there are though. I mean, uh, you know, okay. uh, a lot of these nonprofits are, are usually structured as C3s, and maybe they engage in lobbying or maybe they hire a firm to mm-hmm. do the lobbying. Right. But C6s specifically is really about industry trade groups. All right. I well, mean, there is a difference there. I, I, you know, I, okay, fair enough. I just, I, I, you know, it's kind of the same discomfort that I feel when I see them calling to, uh, you know, s- censor videos on YouTube or Facebook. And right. uh, even though I object to a lot of those videos, I begin to get uncomfortable when we start pulling I out. I understand, but I, I think yeah. the, the, the idea of means testing you're talking about or yeah. segregating yeah. The, the, the bad actors from the good or whatever, yeah. I think that's done in the tax code. Like, I think that C4 groups, which are literally just dark money groups, the right. idea that we would be funding dark money groups yeah. with, uh, with federal dollars, uh, it seems insane to me. <laughs> and, 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 and C6 is really about industry lobbying firms. So okay. 
I, I feel like the segregation is already in, inherent in the tax code, and we need to, to maintain that. Fair enough. Uh, thank you for defending that, because clearly you know more about it than I do. But I was like, <laughs> hey, those people need to work, too, don't they? Maybe not. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> I, by the way, let yeah. me just agree with you in the sense that, in general, yeah. I do believe that. I believe that the, the, the dishwasher at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, even though we don't like that Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, which might have access to money elsewhere, right. got you know a PPP loan. Mm-hmm. I, I think that dishwasher deserves to make money. I right. think the housekeeper at the Ritz Carlton Hotel yeah. uh, deserves to, to to get that money, uh, and in, and especially if this money, you know, I mean, the PPP. There was one thought that well, there's only a limited amount of funds to go around, and so we should err on the side of truly small businesses, Mm -hmm. and recycle that money that comes from the larger businesses that have other opportunities to uh, find funding, uh, uh, recycle it to the smaller businesses. But now what we're actually seeing is that the PPP isn't oversubscribed, that that it's slowed down Mm -hmm. significantly, and that there's still $200 left from the uh, second round Mm -hmm. uh, of, of, uh, of, of funding that was put into it. And so now you're just when you're when there's these witch hunts that sort of take away this PPP money. Right. It's now directly causing more joblessness. It's like taking mm-hmm. money away. Right. Uh, uh, so you know, I certainly don't support that. I've been uh, pretty vocal about not supporting that. I, I do think that uh, lobbying firms represents a, a, a different animal. You can find David Dayan every day having it both ways uh, in his unsanitized column at the American Prospect, where he is the executive editor. You can sign up for that. Uh, you can get it in newsletter form every day in your email box by stopping by prospect.org. And, of course, you can find him on the uh, on the Twitters at D. Dayan. David is the author of the 2016 book Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. And he has a new upcoming book that I think will be coming out even in the middle of the pandemic next month mm-hmm. titled Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. David Day, and always great talking with you, my friend. We will do it again soon. Okay, thank you. Thank you, brother. Okay, pushing it up against the wall as usual. <laughs> Every ain't day. I? Yeah, I am. <laughs> thank you to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's thrilling broadcast, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, along with all of the others we have ever done. That's made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You guys are the ones keeping us on the air, on your public airwaves. You have only yourself to blame. <laughs> You can also drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. I hope to see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman, and I mean it. Good luck, world.